I had this buddy growing up named Mike, um, and Mike was uh, the baby of a pretty large family um, and pretty spread out. His oldest brother was 30 years older than him. Um, so uh, he was, so Mike's dad was probably close to 70 when we were in like high school and uh, older than some of our grandparents at the time. And uh, Ski was what we called him. His last name was um, Polish, and so everybody just called him Ski. But, um, but uh, uh, in our adolescent minds, Ski was like a million years old. He was like as old as it gets. And, uh, and even though we were all like young, weightlifting, football player types um, and teenage boys, and we liked to get in fights and, you know, street fight every once in a while whenever we get a chance and Despite all this, we were terrified of Ski. Like, all of us were scared of him. Because he had this thing he would do where you'd be sitting at the table, and if he felt like you were getting kind of cocky, if he felt like you were, you were feeling good about yourself, he'd look at you with these crazy eyes. And he would go, at my age, I've only got about 20 to 30 seconds to fight in me. But that's all it's going to take. <laughs> and, you, and he would look, and he looked nuts. And so he was like, and, uh, uh, and all of us were terrified of that, like, you could see the craziness, and we believed him. And uh, and a lot of my friends' dads had that. Um, Scott, the, my buddy Scott's dad, had been a Golden Glove boxer um, when he was in the military, and he had one whole wall that was committed to like his trophies and pictures and gloves and all this stuff. And whenever he would hear us getting lippy, he'd say, "Come here for a second. He'd walk us over to the wall, and he'd remind us that we're not all we think we are. He was like, "Do you want to wind up on my wall?" Like that was his like that was his way of of doing it. My own dad had a similar invitation, but that was just reserved for me. He didn't do it to my friends. But um, the funny thing was, none of us ever took him up on it. Like none of us, we were all terrified. And I don't think I fully understand what was happening until years later, um, when I'd been framing houses for a few years. Uh, every time we would get a new laborer, um, we called them lumber humpers. But somebody whose just job was to carry labor or lumber. Um, I had this routine that I would pull, and I did it all the time. Um, when we were spreading out floor joists on the house, pretty early in the build, uh, uh, they would be carrying um, two-by-tens, and they're, they're heavy boards, they're long, and so most people carry them one at a time, like, and, and even struggle at that. So they're, when they would be carrying them around to the back of the house, these great big heavy boards, um, I had this thing I would do where I would go up, like after I'd watch them carry one board at a time for a while, I'd go up to the pile of lumber, and I'd pick up about five of them, and I would, I would walk them up from the end because as long as I didn't have to pick it up off the ground, I could get a Volkswagen bug on my shoulder. I just couldn't lift it up there. But long 2x10s, they didn't realize the magic. If I walked up from the end, got to the center point, let them rock up on my shoulder, like I'd go walking around the back of the house, this thing, I'd throw it down. I was like, that's how you carry lumber. You know, and while they're like, you know, their eyes would get big and they're, oh, my God, you know. And, uh, and I would walk around and, huh. And then I'd walk to the other side of the tool trailer where nobody could see me, and I would go, oh, my God, i got to stop doing this. I can't. This is too much. And, but I'd never let anybody see that, that part of me. So everybody thought I was this, you know, giant gorilla who could carry anything. And uh, I was good for about one of those a year, so I made sure we didn't hire too many lumber humpers because I couldn't do this very often. But, uh, but after uh, one day, after doing my little manipulative display, um, I stopped and remembered Ski and his crazy eyes and, uh, and, and Wally and his boxing trophies. And I wondered if they ever, like, threatened the big six-foot-three, 230-pound teenager 
And as I backed down, I wonder if they went, whew, that was close. I thought he was going to call me on that one that time. Like, I wonder if it was all bluff, um, like it was for me. But, um, but it's funny what we'll do to keep up appearances. And, uh, and we're going to be talking about appearances this, this week as we dive into um, week five of our series we're calling Before You Go. Um, we're spending this series preparing ourselves for a year where we feel like God is calling us to go. Um, we spent last year focusing on the core tenets of the faith, the foundational beliefs of the gospel message. And, and what is more natural after that than, than spending a year talking about how that should change us, how that should transform us, especially how we go and share those truths with the world. Um, which if you haven't noticed, the world is really, really struggling and really desperate for truth right now. Um, so we talked about our sin and how our sin can affect our ability to, uh, to go into the world and make disciples. We recognize that our lives are the best tool um, for our go bag as we're sharing the gospel. And it's not that we have to be perfect, but we aren't in, if we aren't engaged in the process of sanctification, of, of actually confronting our sin and, and welcoming conviction and even guilt at times, that's how we get better is to feel that guilt, own it, and say, I need to do better. Um, then the world can see right through us. If we don't do that, the world can see right through us. Um, and this is crazy countercultural today. This is not the way the world works today, which is kind of actually nuts because today we're supposed to feel guilty about everything. We're supposed to feel guilty about the stuff we throw in the trash. We're supposed to feel guilty about how we raise our kids, the, the country we live in, the color of our skin, what we eat, um, the fact that our faith comes with some convictions. We're supposed to feel guilty about all that. In fact, we're supposed to feel guilty about everything but sin. Like, it's kind of weird. The one thing we're not allowed to feel guilty about is our sin. Everything else we're supposed to feel guilty for. We should feel guilty if, if we um, make other people feel guilty because of their sin. Like, guilt is like a huge part of our culture as long as it's not about sin, which is weird. So there's something powerful about not only owning our sin, but recognizing that it is sin and that we're supposed to feel guilty about that. And when we do that in front of the world, we let them know, I'm not where I should be. I still got work I got to do. And they see us in that. It's countercultural. And, and we also welcome the Holy Spirit uh, in to allow us to, to overcome our sins. So we talked about our sin. We also talked about our health. Recognize the greatest gift we have to offer the world is the healthiest us we can manage. When we, when we show up and tell the world that we have the cure for the world's sickness and and not like an easy life that everything is up and to the right and smells like lavender, but, but a meaningful life, something that, that um, has purpose and, and meaning that actually satisfies the soul and taps into what we were made for. When we're offering that to the world and we're a hot mess ourselves, um, the world is not going to listen to us. So as we get healthier and, and we invite the world in, into a relationship that brings health, um, uh, it's inviting, and, and not to mention just the practical reality that we can do more for the kingdom when we're physically healthy. We can give more to the kingdom when we're financially healthy. We can uh, be more relationally present to people when we're emotionally healthy, and, and we're far more likely to, to pray and teach and lead others to Jesus when we're spiritually healthy. Health is important. That doesn't mean that we have to be perfect, of course. We are wounded healers, but, but it does mean that if there's anything we can do to get more healthy, spirit, soul, and body, we need to do it. We need to engage that process, and, and we need to, that needs to be part of our ministry. We need to see it as something we do to serve the world. It's not selfish to take time for your own health. If you do it so that you can leverage that health for the kingdom, I want to be more present. To do that, I have to be more healthy. There's a principle called pruning. 
when you cut back branches that seem to be fruitful. They seem like you can't cut down the branches. That's the, that's the most important part, but it's, it's necessary for the health of the rest of the tree so that it can be more fruitful in the, in the future. So sometimes we have to stop being productive so that we can focus on our own health so that we can uh, leverage that to, to be, if our productivity has an expiration date, like I can be productive but only for this long and then I'm going to run out of steam, then we need to stop and get healthy so that we can be more present for the, for the kingdom and have far greater impact. We talked about our money last week. Um, before we, we take the gospel of the world, we need to wrestle with our own generosity first and maybe easiest is the question, are we investing in the gospel? Um, more specifically in ministries that spread the gospel. Our fiscal year here at Open Table starts February 1st, and so our elders spend January wrestling over our budgets and, and how we're going to spend the money that you guys so generously trust us with. And this year we've decided we're going to lean in and support a few ministries whose primary um, aim is to obey the Great Commission, to go into all the world and make disciples. And so we're, we've, we're going to invest in three ministries, and, and I would love for you guys to, to follow them and, and, and do what you can. We're going we're gonna to try and get some of them, maybe even on a Sunday morning, to, to jump on a Zoom call and tell us what's going on in their world. But we're going to support them regularly, monthly. C. Chung, I know some of you guys remember last year we took an offering for C. Chung. He lives in Thailand. Thailand? I think so. But um, he serves a church network in China where it is illegal um, to worship uh, Jesus the way they do. The only like uh, legal churches are state-recognized churches where you have to have a picture of the emperor on the back wall that's at least bigger than the cross in the room. Like it's a, and, and you're allowed to worship in, in a Christian church in that environment, but nothing else. And so they're passing laws right now. The persecution on Christians is is stronger right now than it's been for years and years and years. And C. Chung is taking, um, he's part of an organization that's training house church pastors. And so it's intense. He explained what it's like when they have a training time. They have to meet these pastors all over the city, different places, take their phones apart and throw pieces away so they can't be tracked. And then they have to like covertly get them all into the training space. And once they do, it's like a 14-hour day. Like while we have you in this place, we're going to give you everything we can give you. And and it's, it's high risk. It's a, and so we're, we're going to support him. We've got people in our church that have been supporting him for years. As a church, we're going to give to him monthly um, to support C. Chung as he works to share the gospel in, in uh, China. And then we're going to um, give to an organization called Kingdom Matters. It's called Kingdom Matters Organization, um, KMO, in Tanzania. Um, and uh, we've got some connections um, with that uh, with a missionary over there. And the, the neat thing about him is he's on Facebook. If you look up Kingdom Matters organization, Glenn Roseberry is his name. And he's really active on Facebook. So you get to see exactly what your money's doing. Um, uh, our, our family personally, a couple years ago, they had kids that needed uniforms for school. And, uh, and we took what would have just been our gifts to each other inside Esther's family um, for Christmas. So not much. We don't spend much on each other. But we decided not to give each other a gift. And we would all just put that money together and send it over. And with our little family, what we would have spent on Christmas, we were able to put uniforms on every single kid in that village to go to school. Like a little money goes a long way there, which is super cool. So we're going to support them. And, and if you get on Facebook and, and look for Kingdom Matters organization, you can see everything your money's doing, which is kind of awesome. He keeps everybody really... Unfortunately, C. Chung can't do that because he's got to be really careful with his uh, location at all times. So he can't just throw stuff on Facebook. He'd wind up in prison pretty quick. Um, so it's a little tougher to follow C. Chung, but he will, whenever he gets out of China, as he's in Thailand, um, give us updates and things. So we'll try to keep you guys updated on that. But um, 
But yeah, uh, Kingdom Matters organization in Tanzania, you can follow almost day to day. He's putting something up um, uh, that's, that is, uh, lets you know what you're giving to, which is super cool. Um, and it's convicting because when you see what worship is like for them, you know, an all-day ordeal, standing up most of the time, you know, in, in the elements, it's, it's, it's humbling um, to, to see what they'll do just to be able to be with the people of God and, and get a chance to worship. Um, and then we're going to do a third organization um, called uh, Urban Reach St. Louis. Um, Brett um, got to do a day of ministry with them last year. It's one of the worst zip codes in St. Louis, and they're... Uh, um, they were granted a, a building and, and some space, and so they're turning it into like a, a beachfront to, to reach out to this um, urban area um, in St. Louis. And so, and then we've got um, our own local. Um, we do have a fund that that's just for helping people in, in Wellsville and some of the surrounding communities when they need need help paying utilities or a gas card or or just things like that that we can take care of people. So we've got a local um, fund. We've got a, kind of a, a nationwide urban fund that we're, we're trying to help uh, in our own country, and then we're also trying to go to the world. So we kind of got the bullseye thing um, that we're trying to support. So if you want to personally um, give to any of those, we're going to create drop-downs in the thing that you can, um, you can give to any of those ministries if you'd like to. But as a church, we're taking part of our general budget and committing it to, to those three ministries this year, four ministries, the local, the urban in St. Louis, and then the two global ministries in China and Tanzania and Africa and, and uh, the Asian continent. Um, because it's important to invest in the spread of the gospel. All, all of these ministries um, are are spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if that's where our heart is, that's where our treasure has to go. And so on this year of go, we're investing in the spread of the gospel. And we need to make sure personally we're doing that too. If we're asking the world to change the entire trajectory of their lives to follow Jesus, um, whose primary aim is to, um, or to follow Jesus and, and we're inviting them into something we have to invest in it ourselves. Like if we're asking them to join it, we have to be willing to invest in it. Um, but generosity is also just about being generous in spirit. Um, the world is so focused on self and making sure that I get mine and just this consumer mentality that we're all overwhelmed with. Um, and what's in it for me? Um, when we show up and we're truly generous and we're truly giving, um, it stands out. It looks different. People don't even know what to do with it. It makes a difference and the world is drawn to that. Um, well, this week we're, we're talking about maybe the toughest question that we'll wrestle with in this series um, because it affects every other area that we've dealt with. Um, and, it's, uh, and before I reveal the question, we're going to unpack a little bit from the text. And it's kind of ironic if you come to our Monday night Bible study, this will be a little bit of a review for you because in a weird uh, coincidence, on Monday nights we're just kind of walking through the book of Acts together. Um, and we don't really have like a set agenda. It's just whatever we bump into next we talk about. And uh, so this week on Monday night, we bumped into the, 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 the story that we're dealing with today. That we just had, And I already had this one scheduled for, for this week. So I wish I was like uh, organized enough and cool enough to do that kind of stuff on purpose. But <laughs> I'm just not. And so I just kind of have to trust the Holy Spirit to make this stuff work out every once in a while. But we're going to be in a really tough story in Acts 5. Um, and honestly, this is one of the most confusing and frightening stories in all the scripture. Uh, it spooks everyone. And the people who like to teach this passage, who really lean into this, are usually doing it 
to create fear and leverage power, um, honestly. But, but I hope you'll take a little different look at it this morning. So let's look at the text. It says, but there was a certain man named Ananias who with his wife, Sapphira, sold some property. He brought part of the money to the apostles, claiming it was the full amount. And his wife's, with his wife's consent, he kept the rest. Then Peter said, Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit and you kept some of the money for yourself. The property was yours to sell or not sell as you wished. And after selling it, the money was yours to give away. Uh, how could you do this, uh, a thing like this? You weren't lying to us, but to God. As soon as Ananias heard these words, he fell to the floor and died. Everyone who heard about it was terrified. Then some young men got up, wrapped him in a sheet, and took him out and buried him. After about three hours uh, later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, was this the price you and your husband received for the land? Yes, she replied, that was the price. And Peter said, how could the two of you even think of conspiring to test the Holy Spirit of the Lord like this? The young men who buried your husband are just outside the door and they will carry you out too. Instantly, she fell to the floor and died. When the young men came in and saw that she was dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear gripped the entire church and everyone else who heard, uh, and everyone else who heard what happened. And that may be... Luke's greatest understatement ever. <laughs> Great fear group gripped the entire church. I would imagine. And I want to know who these guys are that can bury a body so fast. I don't know if you've ever dug in dirt, but that might be the hardest work ever. Like that might be the hardest thing. I think the reason most murderers get caught is because they, they start digging and then they realize that's going to take me all day and they just throw some leaves over it. And <laughs> How do you... How do you <laughs> yeah. This is what my brain does when I try to study the Bible. Like, who are these guys, man? And what kind of shovels were they using? Hopefully they had a first century backhoe because it would take me like four days to bury a body. Anyway, um, this is the kind of story that that when non-Christian historians read it, they tend to believe um, that this actually happened because there's no motive for the original Bible authors to make up this story. This could not have drawn converts to the faith. Um, the only thing that would cause them to write this story was it actually happened this way. Um, you don't create, like, this is what will really draw people in. We'll tell them about that. We'll make up a story about someone dying because they lied. Like, uh, chances are this exactly. And Peter comes off harsh. Um, and honestly, God doesn't exactly seem full of love and grace either. Um, so what on earth are we supposed to get from this? And, uh, and, and here's something I would like for you to consider. And I'm going to admittedly be using a little holy imagination here, but, but go with me for a minute. Ananias and Sapphira are fairly new believers. Um, actually, everyone is. Um, I've been studying the Bible pretty intently for a little over 31 years, and I still feel like a newbie most days. Um, and, and the most experienced person in Acts 5 spent three years with Jesus and has now been running a church for maybe six months. So these are, so like the most experienced person in the story is still fairly new, a fairly new Christian. Um, and the time they did spend with Jesus, they were mostly lost and confused, you know. So they're all pretty new at this. So Ananias and Sapphira are not somebody we would call mature Christians. Um, but even as pretty new believers, this couple was moved to sell something they owned to contribute to the needs of the church. Um, and so let's stop right there. Uh, we talked last week about generosity and being mindful that we 
uh, invest in the spread of the gospel in ways that when we invite others to the kingdom, we can honestly put our money where our mouths are. Um, and honestly, we have an incredibly generous church. We do. Um, not only do you guys keep the lights on around here, but uh, every time we, we have a need in the church that we invite you to share in meeting, um, the response is amazing, it, always. Um, so we, we do an incredible job here at OGCC uh, at being generous. And I know uh, you guys are a part of that, but when was the last time you sold something of real value um, just so you could donate the money to the church? I mean, very few of us go that route, unless it's something we want to sell anyway, and we're just like, I need it out of my house, and you know, I don't really need the money. So, but like, like, oh, there's a need. What can I sell? What can I sell? What can I sell? Like, not very many of us go that route. Um, and Ananias and Sapphira did that. They saw a need. They sold some things so they could um, help meet that need. Um, and so it's pretty impressive. So they're new Christians who, um, who are moved to help, which is... Um, crazy cool. I don't know why my phone is dancing around. It must be vibrating. Um, so, uh, but listen to what Peter says. Because um, they did not have to do this. Peter says, The property was yours to sell or not sell, as you wish. And after selling it, the money was yours to give away. So, so this is not happening under compulsion. This is something they feel inspired to do. Nothing in this story is compulsory. So the fact that they wanted to give anything was pretty generous. So what's the deal with the story then? Well, to get to this, we need to look at the atmosphere. Um, and, and to get to that, we need to back up just a little bit. Remember, there were no chapter breaks in the original Scripture. Those were added later. So in the original text, this would have read through perfectly smooth from chapter 4 to chapter 5. It would have said, all the believers were united in heart and mind. And they felt that what they owned was not their own. So they shared everything they had. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's great blessing was upon them all. There were no needy people among them because those who owned land and houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles and give to those in need. For instance, there was Joseph, the one the apostles nicknamed Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He was from the tribe of Levi and came from the island of Cyprus, so uh, he sold a field he owned and brought the money to the apostles. But there was a certain man named Ananias who with his wife Sapphira sold some property. That's how it would have read originally, straight through. And what we need to imagine is, is what it must have felt like to live in that amazing environment, to be part of that kind of a movement. They were united in heart and mind. They shared everything they had. The, the apostles were preaching the resurrection. The, God was blessing all of them. And no one had any needs because they were taking care of each other. Can you imagine what that must have been like to be a part of that? That's when I experienced a community close to this when we were first started dating. It was kind of my first experience of, of, of Christianity, really. First couple years of our marriage, we were part of a small group. And, and we were together every night. We ate together. We did chores together. We talked about the Bible constantly together. We prayed together and, and took care of each other's needs. It was just the way we did life. We never planned anything. There was no agenda. It was just Christ-centered life together. And I'll be honest, it, it ruined me for a little bit. Once, we, once we, you've experienced that kind of community, it's hard to be satisfied with less. I spent years just dissatisfied with church because I wanted that early church feel back. I wanted to feel connected to people and like we were doing life together. 
And to this day, we're still constantly looking for that kind of doing life together. And, and, and maybe you don't like people like I do, and that much closeness makes you feel itchy. I get that. And that's fine. I know people different, have different personalities. But for the sake of conversation just, or conversation, just imagine whatever would constitute the most close-knit, encouraging, life-giving style of community that you can dream up. Imagine that kind of world, being a part of something like that, being a part of that kind of movement. So everyone pictures what kind of community gives you the warm fuzzies and makes you feel seen and loved and cared for. Now, once you have that picture in your head, imagine you're in that kind of a community, but you're not really part of it. You're, you're a little on the outside. You, you, can, you can see the closeness. You can, you can tell that everybody's loved and accepted. They, they all feel part of it. You can tell that everybody's being fed by this and being blessed greatly by this life-giving group, but you're, you feel on the outside of it. I don't feel in. I don't feel like I'm, I'm part of it. I don't, you're, you're alone. And there's no worse part of being alone than when you're alone surrounded by people. That's the loneliest feeling of all, when you're lonely but there's people everywhere. Now, let's go back to Ananias and Sapphira. They're in a church where everyone is united in heart and mind. People are crazy generous, and some people are, are, are uh, some of people's giving is actually standing out. It's giving them a reputation of being generous. This guy named Joseph sells some land uh, and gives the proceeds and gets a cool new nickname. And now he's Barnabas, and everyone knows who Barnabas is, and every, everyone. Everywhere Barnabas goes within the church, people whisper, hey, that's Barnabas. That's that dude that sold that field and donated it. I mean, it made a big impression. Luke names him by name. Like, it made a big enough impression on Luke that Luke's like, dude, this Barnabas went nuts, man. He sold this huge piece of land and just gave the money. It's crazy. That's the kind of weird stuff God was doing. Grab this dude named Barnabas. And Ananias and Sapphira see this, and, and they want so badly to be seen and loved and encouraged like that. And so they sell a piece of land and, and they have a, a conversation with each other and they talk about their fear of the future and how that was really their only nest egg. And, and, and in the course of the conversation, they decide to keep some of the proceeds, just a safety net, just a little bit of a safety net. But they still want to give, and, and which I said is crazy generous already. They just aren't ready to fly without a net yet. And, and who on earth could blame them? And so they tell a little white lie, which we've all done. You polish the story just a little bit to make you sound better. You, you leave out the parts that make you look like a turd. It's totally normal. We all do it. But imagine if it works. Imagine they get away with it. Imagine Luke writes their name down next to Barnabas. Imagine people walk up to them the next day and, and talk to them, thank them for their generosity and they just marvel that Ananias and Sapphira had the faith to donate their nest egg and totally trust God like that. Imagine they listen to people say, oh, I hope to have your kind of faith someday. And what about the person who's so inspired by your generosity that they cash in their IRA and donate 100% of it because they, they saw you do it and if you can do it, they can do it. So they give all. And everyone is so nice. 
they tell you how much they love you and they, they tell you how awesome you are and they, they tell you that you make a difference. What would, be, what would life be like a week later? Or a year later? Or ten years later? How many lies do you think you'd have to tell to, to keep that first one hidden? But what would it have felt like to spend the money that you held back? In a community this tight, this committed to one another, this raw and close-knit, how long do you think it would have taken for Ananias and Sapphira to feel like complete phonies? To feel like they can never be seen? And more importantly, how would that have affected their relationship with God? Could it be that God's decision to end their earthly lives immediately rather than letting them walk down this road of of isolation and loneliness was actually grace. Here's what I do know. You cannot receive love while wearing a mask. You can't. You cannot accept to be told you are beautiful when you're wearing a mask. You can put on a show, but, but whenever someone claims to see you, you're forced to remember that they're only seeing the mask. They think you are someone that you aren't. And that's who they see in love. The someone you aren't. Not you. I think this passage is terrifying and I think it's supposed to be. Only I'm not sure we're afraid of what we're supposed to be afraid of. You could read this passage and go away with the idea that lying is so bad that God might strike you dead for doing it. But when I read this story, what I take from it is, is that it might literally be better to die than to be fake, than to live fake. It might actually be a grace to die rather than live fake. Because when you look close, that's really the only thing Ananias and Sapphira did wrong. They didn't have to sell anything. Peter made that clear. They didn't have to give anything. Peter made that clear. Their only mistake was that they wanted everybody to think that they were more generous, more holy, more Christian than they really were. Which is why we're asking this question this week. Are you for real? Now, believe it or not, after taking so long to get to our question, I really don't have a ton of time to unpack the question. Other than just to leave this story of Ananias and Sapphira hanging there to haunt us. Like it should. And to say this, more than anything we talk about in this series, if you're going to be an ambassador for Jesus and take seriously His command to go into all the world and make disciples, you have to be authentic. We talk about authenticity all the time here at OTCC and especially the need for authenticity if we're going to build real life and and real life-giving relationship and community. But authenticity is just as important in our evangelism. If we aren't real and authentic with the people that we talk to about Jesus, then then you might as well uh, be a door-to-door traveling huckster and they can see right through you. It's important that we realize that we're not selling an idea or a worldview or a political position. We're introducing people to the living God who knows them and wants to be in relationship to them. And this cannot be done with a sales pitch. 
This is sharing your life and hopefully your most important relationship with someone with the hopes that they might, that you might be a stepping stone to them building that same kind of relationship with their father. It involves sharing the historical truths of Jesus, of course, what he did for us. And, but even more, it's about sharing what impact Jesus has authentically had on your life. Evangelism requires us to be real. And this should come in a relief, as a relief, honestly, because we don't have to perform. Most of us wear our faith like a stack of two-by-tens on our shoulder. And it's crushing us, even when we smile and say hallelujah. And whenever someone's not watching, we collapse and drop it and gasp as soon as we're alone. And that's not what Jesus intended. He said, come to me all who are weary and uh, and, and carry heavy burdens and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I'm humble and gentle at heart and you will find rest for your souls. An authentic relationship with Jesus should, should be light and transformative. It should be as, as real and life-giving. That doesn't mean that there's no hard stuff. Of course there's hard stuff. It just means we shouldn't have to constantly hold up a mask. Masks get heavy. The beauty of grace is that we, we should all know, all know that we're undeserving. When we come real and that reality isn't pretty, it shouldn't shock anyone. We all know that we're only here by grace anyway. Grace by definition means that you're a hot mess saved by the undeserved love of God. And some, for some reason, we hide from that. We want to make everybody think we're awesome rather than showing up as we are and saying, man, God's grace is good because I'm a mess. <coughs> so even though we've talked about our sin, and yes, we should battle our sin and move towards holiness with all the strength the Holy Spirit gives us. And we've talked about our health, and yes, we should work hard to be healthy so that the, the world can see the fruit of following Jesus. And yes, we... We should be generous. Uh, what we do and, and how we give should demonstrate to the world what our values are and where our heart is. But, but none of this should be worn like a weight. These are, act, these are not acts you put on. They're goals that we authentically move toward as the Holy Spirit transforms us. And whenever we're in that process, we own where we are. Which means this process of authenticity starts in the most uncomfortable place possible. The mirror. You can't be real with your church family uh, or the unchurched friends, co-workers, if you haven't learned to be real with yourself. Paul touched on the importance of this in Romans 12. We talked about this summer. Because of the privilege and authority God has given me, I give each of you this warning. Don't think you are better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves, measuring yourselves by the faith God has given us. Authenticity starts in the mirror. It starts by getting honest about where we are, where we're doing good and, and where we still need work and grace. It starts with us knowing our gifts and our weaknesses. It starts with us knowing where we're wounded and how those wounds are affecting our reactions to certain situations. It's, 
It's about realizing that we have limits and that's not a bad thing. Authenticity starts with being authentic with ourselves. Years and years ago, Adam and Eve ate some fruit. They looked in the mirror and did not like what they saw. So they put on fig leaves to hide behind. In the power of the Holy Spirit, we need to be brave enough to drop the leaf and show up naked. Metaphorically, of course. Please don't come to church naked. (laughs) Paul said, be honest in your evaluation of yourself. Then when you put that authenticity in your go bag and, and, and you go into your little piece of the world to make disciples, you know who you are. And you can share that with others. So how do we respond to this? A little over 20 years ago, um, Esther and I were a wreck. Um, I was working full-time and doing ministry full-time. Um, and Esther was basically raising our nine kids by herself. And our marriage imploded. I had a significant moral failure. We were a mess. Uh, Both the church I was in ministry uh, at and the Bible college I was teaching in both gave us some time off to work on our marriage, but both wanted us back basically as soon as possible. But both strongly encouraged us not to tell anybody about our situation. We could get some counseling. We could talk to the leadership in the ministry if we needed to. But other than that, just keep it under wraps. So while we were away from ministry for a few months, we decided that if we were going to go back into ministry, um, we needed to be honest about who we were and, and what kind of mess we had made of things. We were, we were convicted to be authentic and real. And so we asked both ministries for the permission to stand up and be real about where we were. And they both told us no. And so we obeyed and we put our mask back on. We pulled up our fig leaf. And we went back into ministry. And it almost killed us. We, it, we struggled far longer than we needed to because we were struggling alone. We felt like frauds every time we went anywhere. People regularly told us how awesome we were and how do you guys do so much and you're so talented and man, your kids' ministry is so amazing, blah, blah, blah. And we couldn't receive any of it. Because every time we felt like if you only knew if you just watched us talk to each other one night, you'd kick us out in a heartbeat. We weren't allowed, we weren't able to receive any love. Finally, after about three years, we decided we couldn't do this any longer. We were leading a small group at the time, and we didn't ask. We told our church leadership that we were going to be honest with our small group, tell them the whole story. We were done hiding. We were going to be authentic, like it or not, and let the chips fall where they would. So we told our story and we found healing. We've been committed to authenticity ever since. We will be real. And that means people aren't going to like us, some people. Some people are going to judge us. Some people are going to, you know, think that my language is a little too edgy and they're going to not like some of my jokes, but I'm going to be me. Or So here's the deal. Authenticity is messy. Authenticity sometimes hurts. It disappoints. It can be scary. But I would rather love a hot mess that I can see than a mask and have no idea what's behind it. And even more, the lost people in our lives who need 
so desperately to hear the gospel or maybe rehear the gospel for the thousandth time, they need to hear it from the real you. The lost do not like fig leaves. They don't like posers and pretenders. If the lost sense that, that they're being sold a bag of goods rather than being invited into something real with a real Savior that, that's really in your life, with a real you, then they will not be interested in buying what you're selling. So here's how I'd love to respond to this message. Start by standing naked in front of the mirror. Again, metaphorically. There are some of us who have no business being naked in the same room as a mirror. (laughs) But learn to be honest with yourself about who you are. And then practice that with somebody you're close to. Don't just walk out one day and say, I'm going to dump it all on everybody. No, start small. Find somebody you're close to. Take the mask off for a few minutes. Let your true face breathe a little bit. Share something that, that you've been afraid to share. Make sure it's a trusted friend. Like, Be smart. But practice small bits of authenticity at first. And as you get better at it, and as you grow more and more comfortable with who you are when that mirror doesn't hurt so bad, try being real with more people. Go big. Go bigger. Tell your story more freely. Own own your story. Even as you share Christ with others. So start in the mirror this week and decide that that little by little I'm going to learn to be real. Let's go to the table.